Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, in this chapter we'll be reading verses 19 through 22, those are the last few verses of the chapter, and then we will breathe a word of prayer together. The Apostle Paul, in his epistle said, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow servants, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, You have given to us, Your servants, grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of Your eternal Trinity and in the power of Your divine majesty to worship You in unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Today is Trinity Sunday, and it marks the the end of the season that... Um, that runs from Easter on to Pentecost. Last week we celebrated Pentecost and we were reminded of the giving of the Holy Spirit as God had prophesied in the Old Testament that He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. The church, in a sense, was celebrating its birthday last week. And today we have Trinity Sunday, which ends that season and then begins what's called the proper season. It's the remaining weeks that are left until we get to Advent. We're halfway back toward Advent, and I'm rejoicing. I'm looking forward to the cold weather and the, uh, the, uh, the warm apple cider. I can, I can smell it and almost taste it. Um, today is Trinity Sunday, and it being Trinity Sunday, it being a Sunday that uh, is a little less familiar to some of us, I, I thought it would be good to to share just a a few thoughts that I have about the liturgical calendar. Um, I want to tell you why I appreciate the liturgical calendar. Liturgy itself, as a word, means the work of the people. It sounds like a very high-flown word. It sounds like a very regal word. But it simply means the work of the people. And in the context of worship, liturgy is about 
the people's expression together of the gospel and in their worship of God. The liturgical calendar is that calendar that guides the church from Advent on through Christmas, the season of Christmas, on into Epiphany, and from there, uh, a season of, of Epiphany, and then Ash Wednesday, Lent, Good Friday, on into uh, to Easter and our celebration. And we get back eventually to where we are now, and then we step on into a, a season that's kind of a common time. But that liturgical calendar, it moves us not, not based on uh, what, what is happening in the world around us, but it moves us according to the gospel. And the interesting thing about uh, the liturgical calendar, and one of the reasons why I love it so much, is it covers the whole spectrum of Scripture. If you know about the history of Sunday school, when Sunday school was developed, it was developed based upon a three-year curriculum cycle. And in those three years, you would have all of the basics of the scriptures that are being delved into by those who are participating in the Sunday school program. So in three years, you would be moving through all of the major themes of the Old and New Testaments. You would be moving through all of the major themes of the gospel, and you would be learning so much. And then after those three years, you'd move on up, and you'd go through another three-year cycle. The liturgical calendar helps us to see the whole the whole expanse of Scripture. It keeps us from locking on to our favorites and parking there. Instead, we're moving through the whole Word of the Lord. Which brings me to the next thing. It is not just gospel-centered, it is actually gospel-crafted. If you'll notice, the liturgical calendar doesn't just touch on the cross... It doesn't, it doesn't neglect the cross. It doesn't just touch on Easter, nor does it neglect Easter. It covers the whole gospel. And like I said, it's not just gospel-centered. Uh, gospel it is gospel-crafted. The whole shape of the liturgical calendar is declaring to us what God has done to redeem us. The good news that God has not left us alone. He, is, he has ransomed us. He has prepared us. He has, he has called us to wait before Him. He has sent His Son into the world. His, his Son came to redeem the whole world, not just the Jewish people. His Son was not just a Messiah for Israel. He was a Christ for the entire world. And the gospel is not just that He died for us, but that He was betrayed and He died and He was buried and He rose again and He gives us victory. And He's not left us alone. He has given us His Spirit. And so, I say the, the liturgical calendar is not just gospel-centered. It is gospel-crafted. The whole framework of the gospel is found through the movement of the liturgical calendar. And because it's a calendar, because it's a movement, it invites us as the church into a rhythm of worship and into a rhythm of life shared together. It shakes up our ordinariness. It checks us. We move together through its rhythm. It shapes our worship. It shapes how we 
share time together. It shapes our seasons of celebration and our seasons of repentance. And it invites the whole church to come and to get into the water together and to share this rhythm, to share this rhythm of worship and this rhythm of living. As a pastor, I greatly appreciate the liturgical calendar for a couple of reasons. Because it keeps me off of my high horse. It keeps me from constantly finding myself harping on those subjects that mean so much to my heart and therefore neglecting those subjects that ought to mean a little bit more to my heart. So it keeps me off of my high horse. Otherwise, I'd be preaching the same thing every single week and some of you are thinking, but that's what you do already. (laughs) Imagine how bad it would be. So it keeps me off of my high horse, but it also gives me a chance to ride every so often. It does offer me a regular opportunity to jump on that high horse and to gallop with my hair flown in the wind. Today is Trinity Sunday. And we've reached the midpoint of the liturgical calendar. And the Trinity, fascinatingly, is not just based upon a bunch of proof texts that we find in the Scriptures. We... The church has not developed a concept of the Trinity because we found a verse here and a verse there and we thought, ooh, we've got to come up with a system for it. That's not not what we mean by the Trinity. The Trinity is not just built upon a, a few texts here in the New Testament. It's actually based upon the entire Word of God, Old and New Testaments, as God has revealed Himself. We see that He has revealed Himself as Trinity. The Trinity is God's revelation throughout the story of redemption. You have hints of Trinitarian language in the beginning of the story. Let us make man in our image. Well, who's all that us talk? The prophet Isaiah overheard God in himself saying, whom shall we send and who will go for us? So you have almost whispers of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But you have God through a story revealing himself, disclosing himself to us. And he discloses himself as three persons, living in eternal communion together, doing nothing apart from one another, redeeming together. I remember as a kid, watching um, on Saturday afternoons, there were some things that I would watch that would uh, put me in a, a restful mood and Eventually, I'd fall asleep uh, in front of the television. One of the things that I loved about a a lazy Saturday afternoon was being able to watch uh, Bob Ross programs. You remember Bob Ross? That man could paint. Um, And I remember, you know, he had the most relaxing of voices and the way he spoke and the things that he said, the way he worded things. It would just kind of, me as a kid, it'd get me relaxed and I... I was always fascinated by how amazing his work was, but how effortlessly it seemed to uh, 
to, to, to develop on the canvas. But I remember watching Bob Ross paint, and he would start out, and he'd, sometimes he'd tell you what he was going to paint, and he'd get started in. At first you thought, what in the world is he talking about? There's no way that's going to become a mountain with trees everywhere. I don't even see the river. What's he talking about a river? There is no river. And so you're watching this painting kind of unfolding on the canvas, and once you get to the end, you say, ah, of of course, there's the river. Why didn't I see it before? That's kind of what the, the, the reaction that the church had in the first couple of centuries after the scriptures had been, had been received by the church. They, they realized, wait a minute. God has revealed himself as Trinity. He has revealed himself as three persons. The, the Son was not created. Jesus is not a created being. He is the eternal Son of God who came to redeem us. Of course. How did I not see this before? Let's take a step back for a moment and look at a broader subject than just the liturgical calendar and just the Trinity. Theology matters because theology is the study of the one who has redeemed us and has brought us into his family. Here again, the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that family language having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, talking about what has come before us, laying down a foundation for us, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The language that Paul uses in describing what God has done to redeem us and to establish a church for himself, to bring us into the family of God, is Trinitarian language. Because God, as he is, has redeemed us. Our redemption is the workings of the triune God. Our identity as the body of Christ, as the church, is the working of the triune God. Some have said that the Father sought or thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit brought it. However you want to word that, the fact is, that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit have worked together to redeem us and to make us the family of God. And so theology is important, not because it's some academic enterprise or because it's fun or it's cool, it is all of that, but theology matters because it is, it is us putting into words what God has done to the best of our abilities, what He has done to redeem us, what He has done to make us into His church. Theology as a, as a term simply means 
God words or words about God. And so when we theologize or when we talk theology, we're speaking of what God has done, who He is, how He's revealed Himself to be, and how He's made us to be His people. And so that alone ought to help us better appreciate the subject of theology. But also, theology matters because it's intended to arise out of personal encounters. When you think of Israel, their theology came from what they said God had done in real time and real space. God has done this in history, and therefore we know this about Himself, and we know this about how we ought to relate to Him. That's what the story of the Old Testament is all about. It is about preparing the way for the New Testament. It is about preparing a line for the Messiah to come into the world. But it's all also about God revealing Himself to these people that He, have cre- he has created to be His own. And He does that through personal encounters. The encounters of Moses, the encounters of Abraham, the encounters of Jacob, the encounters of David, the encounters of Isaiah... God has stepped onto the stage of history and He has encountered people and He has revealed Himself to them. And that is how theology is intended to arise in the church and in our lives. You think of the twelve. Jesus called them to Himself. He called them, come and follow Me. They encountered Him for three years their understanding of what God was doing through him was shaped in that encounter. The Apostle Paul says in his testimony several times throughout the New Testament, he says, look, I was an enemy of God. I thought I was doing the will of God and I was persecuting the church and I was zealous in my persecution of the church. It was him uh, before whose feet the, the garments were thrown when Stephen was being stoned to death, Paul, the onlooker, the one in authority, overseeing what was happening, what was happening. But Paul says that Christ encountered me on the road to Damascus, and my life was forever changed. And Paul began became the father of what's or one who's considered the father of Christian theology. You can't escape theology when you read his letters. Whether it's here in Ephesians, which some have said is his most systematic book. Whether it's his letter to the Romans or multiple letters to the Corinthians or the Thessalonians. Regardless of what letter you're reading, even his pastoral letters, his letters writing to Timothy, his young whippersnapper, so to speak, in the faith. You find Paul's theology leaking out onto the page because he can't talk about what God has done without talking about who God is and how God has revealed Himself to be. And so that's where theology ought to arise. But theology is also intended to develop within the context of discipleship. Remember Jesus told His disciples, follow Me. Follow Me. Theology is not just learning information. Discipleship as well is not just learning information. 
This is not just some academic exercise that we perform. Theology being developed in the context of discipleship is intended to be primarily about following Jesus and about growing in Him as we follow. We're called to grow spiritually. We're called to grow relationally with one another. And we are called to, of course, grow intellectually. If, um, if I met a man, sat across the, uh, a lunch table with him, and he told me that he'd been married to his wife for 50 years. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about her. And he's just kind of stammering. Oh, she's, she's got... Green eyes, I think. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're... No, no, they're blue. They're blue. They're blue eyes. Yeah, yeah, because our kids have blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, yeah, they've got to be blue eyes. I'm pretty confident they're blue eyes. Okay, well, you know, where'd y'all meet? Oh, I can tell you where we met. And he tells you where, he, where, where they met. Well, you know, what are some of her interests? Um, she, you know, she, she likes... Crafting a little bit. She she maybe knits. I don't know. She might crochet. I would be thinking, what in the world? This man's been married to the woman for 50 years. And he's just stammering along. He has no earthly idea what he, what he assumes he knows about this woman with whom he's in such a relationship. All relationships, as time moves on, Grow. They either grow hot or they grow cold. And our relationship with Christ ought, if we are following Him, they ought to be shaping our understanding of who He is and what He has done. Now you can't equate theology with growing in Christ but theology certainly ought to be developed as we are growing in Christ. What the disciples understood about God and His intentions for, for redeeming the world was quite drastically different three years after they had spent time with Christ than when they first took up that call, follow me, and said, okay, we'll do it. You have John one of the sons of thunder. One of the most amazing life transformation stories. One of the sons of thunder. He and his brother, when one of the villages rejected Christ, they said, do you want us, Lord, to call down fire on these villages and just burn them up and be done with them? Wow. Wow. Talk about hard preaching. Sheesh. He becomes known as the beloved, the apostle of love. It is he who pins the words, God is love. Now, that's a theological statement. God is love. That is a theological statement based upon his own testimony, his own encounter with the God who is love. 
He once thought God was wrath. God is vengeance. God is justice. But later in life, after spending some time with this God, he declared, God is love. But theology alone is not that to which God calls us. He calls us to make movements. He calls us to to a life characterized by motions. And not emotions, but motions. And those motions are categorized really only in two ways. Theology is calling us to make a motion toward God, toward Him in worship. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, said, The prayer preceding all prayers is, May it be the real I who speaks, may it be the real thou that I speak to. In other words, Lord, as I come to you in prayer and as I come to you in worship, because prayer is part of worship, help me to come transparently. Help me to come not with pretense, not as a hypocrite. Lord, make me bear before you May it be the real I who speaks. And Lord, help me to know to whom I'm speaking. Help me to be praying to you as you really are. Not as I wish you to be. Not as I thought you might have been. But Lord, I want to find the real you. I want to know your character as you really are. And I want... It to be you and you alone to whom I pray. The aim of theology is to rightly know God as He really is, as He's revealed Himself to be. The term orthodoxy, you know, we think of it as right thinking. And t- most theologians would say, well, of course, that's what the practice or the... the uh, the, uh, the aim of orthodoxy is, it is to rightly think of God. But the word itself means right glory or right worship. Orthodoxy is concerned about God as He really is. For if we are to worship Him, we don't want to worship a shadow of Him. And we don't want to worship a caricature of Him. We don't want to worship some cartoon of God. We want to worship Him as He really is. And that's the, that was the bane of the, the Wesleys uh, and the Wesleyan theologians is that John Wesley, until just half a century ago, was not even considered a theologian because he was an Anglican priest and he was a preacher. And Anglicans aren't concerned with writing systematic theologies. They're concerned with worship and liturgy. They're concerned with sermons, preaching. But that's what theology really is all about. 
It's not just some academic exercise. It's not just sitting around reading books. It is developing and shaping our minds to worship God as He really is. Now, if we don't care who God really is, then I would say, okay, just worship whoever you want. We can establish all sorts of gods to worship if we're really not concerned with who God really is. But that's the first motion that theology calls us to. To move ourselves toward God in worship. To come to Him as we really are. To come to Him bringing all that we have. And to find Him as He really is. To lay ourselves before Him and pray, Lord, make me part of this temple that You're building. Make me someone who is indwelled by your spirit so that I can be part of that dwelling place of God. Lord, fit me up against that chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Make me a part of your family. So that's the first motion. The second motion that theology calls us to is a motion toward others in relationships and specifically in evangelism. But as we've moved toward God as He rightly is, He invites us to move also toward others and to take what we've learned of God, what we've learned of His character, what we've learned of His nature, and to apply it in our lives to be shaped by it in our relationships with others. You could call this theology in community. The study of Orthopraxy, it's a coined term uh, that's not very old. And it, it refers to right practice or how do we live out tangibly this orthodoxy or this right understanding and right worship of God. How does that affect my Mondays? How does that affect my Friday evenings? How does that affect my marriage, my family? How does that affect my relationship to my employer. And notice Paul is concerned with both in all of his letters. Ephesians is a perfect example of it. The first three chapters, the first half of that letter, is all about what God has done to redeem us. Orthodoxy. And then the last three chapters, four through six, is all about, okay, well, how do we now live? And he talks about, he gets involved in our family lives and how husbands treat their wives and how wives relate to their husbands and how we ought to relate to those in authority over us, whether they'd be government authorities or whether they'd be employers or, in Paul's day, you know, owners. <clears throat> how the church is to relate to one another as we've all been given various gifts by the Spirit of God. How do we relate to one another? How do we live out in practical living this orthodoxy, this understanding of who God is and what He's done to redeem us? How does the rubber really meet the road in our lives? And I'll say to you that if our theology doesn't transform our interactions with others, then it simply becomes empty words. If our relationship with God does not in some tangible way affect our relationships with others, then it's pointless. We are fooling ourselves, but we're not fooling God. Nor are we fooling others. 
It ought to shape how we speak to others. It ought to shape how we express our love to others. It ought to, it ought to shape every interaction that we have with others. Evangelism is kind of a, um, a specific example or a specific um, expression of our relationships with others. You know, we think of evangelism as being one of the, one of the, uh, the missions of the church, if not the chief mission of the church. And it's not just something we do, but it's something that develops out of the context of relationships. As we build relationships with others, whether they'd be family, or whether they'd be friends, or whether they'd be co-workers or neighbors, as we interact with and build relationships in community with the world around us, we find ourselves rubbing shoulders with those who don't know God, those who haven't given their lives to Christ, those who don't know this, the spiritual life that we have found in Jesus And in our evangelizing, theology is of the utmost of importance. You know, we can, we can say, what in the world is theology? What in the world is reading all that stuff? What in the world is your Wesley sermons? Or, or this, this systematic study? Or these videos you watch or post? What does that have anything to do with evangelism? How does that affect a lost person? Why aren't you sharing the gospel with them? Well, what gospel? Boom, you've immediately gotten into the realm of theology. What God has done to redeem us. What kind of character He has. How He has redeemed us. You cannot divorce theology from relationships and you especially cannot divorce theology from evangelism. The goal of the church in evangelism as we share God with others, as we share our relationship with Christ with others, is to rightly represent the character of the one that we're sharing. To not misrepresent Him. To, to not demean His character as we invite others to get to know Him. Evangelism is about expressing You've got to meet him. You've got to know what I know. God has made himself known to us. He has personally encountered us. He has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And He invites us to share Him with others. And so what is His character? What is the sum of Christian theology? Obviously, the Trinity is where it begins. Dr. Kinlaw would correct me and say that it doesn't begin with the Trinity, it begins with Jesus. And once you encounter Jesus, you can't escape Trinitarian theology. In the, in the, the text that Bill read for us in beginning our service of worship, even in Jesus' own words, 
he can't refer to himself except for referring to himself in relationship to the Father. And that immediately brings up the subject of the Spirit who is to come. But who is this God? What is his character like? He is the God who redeems. He is the God of Advent. The God who is Emmanuel. It's been a long time since we've heard that word because it's been a long time since Advent. Emmanuel. God with us. He is the God who does not leave us alone. He is the God who doesn't abandon us. He is the God who will not leave us to ourselves. He is the God who redeems because He is holy, self-giving love. In the heart of eternity, God is not Lord. He is Father. Before the worlds were created, He is Lord over nothing. But before the worlds were created, a father looked to his son and said, Son. And a son looked to his father and said, Abba, Father. God is concerned with you and with me, with the world around us. For this is his world. He created it, and He wants to redeem it. And He's the God that waits before us and invites us to go. Invites us to go and live out this type of self-giving, sacrificial, other-oriented love. To share that love with the world. To rightly represent Him in our sharing. He calls us to know who He is so that we can be transformed by Him. When you go on that first date, there's normally a little bit of getting to know you type stuff going on. But rarely will you find the person across the table extending to you a journal and saying, here's all there is to know about me. We'll, we'll get together in a couple of years once you've studied up. The nature of theology, the nature of, of growing in our understanding of God is getting out into the water and getting to know Him. And inviting others, you've got you to come check this out. Boy, you're missing out if you're sitting over on the sidelines... So Trinitarian theology is of the utmost importance. It invites us to rightly worship God and it invites us to go and live out His character in relationships for the sake of the world. Will we answer His call to come to Him as He really is? and to go to His world bearing Him 
to live lives in relationships with others like he lives life in relationship with others. Let's pray.